hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm recording this segment at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I'm in one of the big undergraduate buildings here in the wonderful city of Kansas City. Uh, I was formerly the chief of cardiology at the medical school here, the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine. My office was at Truman Medical Center, which is just a stone's throw from here. It's a wonderful undergraduate campus. It's known for uh, its business school as well as uh, its other pre-law and its other programs. One of the nice things about UMKC, it's one of the few six-year medical schools where someone right out of high school can, if they want to go into medicine and they're sufficiently mature and they're screened for this, they can actually from high school enroll in a six-year medical school and become a doctor within six years. And so I always love that model since medical training was so long. And many countries have this, by the way. They have it in Britain, South Africa, and elsewhere. Uh, There's a small number of medical schools in the United States that do that. UMKC has been wonderful. It was formed by a cardiologist named Gray Diamond, and he published the outcomes of this innovative medical school in the Journal of the American Medical Association and so many other periodicals. And I was always so impressed how these young individuals did so well because of the methods of screening them, their family, their maturity level, obviously their intellect and their ability to work hard and become doctors. And I can tell you my uh, years at UMKC were wonderful. I love working with these young, wonderful doctors. They had a system and still do today called the docent system where they're assigned to a senior doctor from the very beginning and they learn uh, both the art and the science of medicine. Kansas City, an absolutely wonderful place. A lot of people have never been there. It's in the middle of the country, but uh, there's no reason to go to Kansas City because it's just not a destination hub. It's known as the city of fountains meaning there are so many decorative fountains all over the city. It's more hilly and more heavily treed than what a lot of people think. However, uh, I can tell you Kansas City has absolutely the worst weather in the winter, just as bad as Detroit or Buffalo, New York, and it has the hottest, most humid summers, just as bad as Dallas or Orlando or elsewhere. It's one of the tough parts about the middle of the country is you have both extremes of weather. Having said that, Kansas City is an absolutely terrific place. I'm going to be eyeing to get some Kansas City barbecue before I get back on the plane uh, and get back tonight to Dallas-Fort Worth. We have a giant auditorium here, and we're set up to have faculty as well as undergraduate and graduate students uh, get really what's now known to be a relatively standard and expected scientific presentation on vaccine safety and efficacy and the urgent need to pivot towards early treatment to close out the pandemic. Uh, So uh, with that, I want to get to the news. Probably the biggest news of the week is that a decision by U.S. District Court Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell, M-I-Z-E-L-L-E. You're going to hear a lot about her. She's young. She's dynamic. Uh, in Tampa, Florida, uh, an appointee of former President Donald Trump uh, has said that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has failed to justify its decision for the mask mandates on 
uh, transportation, including planes, and that the rulemaking procedures uh, were basically not followed, uh, leaving the CDC mandate being fatally flawed. In a 59-page ruling, Mizell said the only remedy was to vacate the rule entirely across the country because it would be impossible to end it for the limited group of people who objected to it in the lawsuit. She said a limited remedy would be no remedy at all, and the courts have full authority to make a decision such as this, even if the CDC goals in fighting the virus are laudable. The Justice Department declined to comment and asked if it would seek emergency stay to block the judge's order. The CDC also declined to comment. The White House uh, said the court really means now that the mask order is not in effect at this time. The jubilation among travelers, uh, flight attendants, pilots uh, was uh, seen in every newsreel around the country. I was on Newsmax giving comment commentary there. And I can tell you, when I look back on it, I think uh, in so many ways uh, the mask represented the false narrative. The mask represented a fear, compliance, uh, and a continuance of this uh, mass psychosis that's really uh, fallen upon the entire country. And as we work our way through masks, and I do cite this uh, in the uh, text for this show, uh, you know, there have been multiple randomized trials and studies of public masking. It didn't fail to impact the pandemic, uh, mainly, I think, because of the fact that if we put masks on a thousand people who don't have the virus, it obviously can't do anything. And that masking only had a role for the acutely sick. Uh, the virus is spread via aerosol. It means it hangs in the air like a cloud of smoke, and uh, the virus can move easily through a mask. But the reason why masks would play a role in the acutely sick is that when people are acutely sick, they also cough and sneeze, and the virus in larger quantities could be spread by droplets or the spray from a cough or a sneeze. Uh, so it's true that patients go to the urgent care, they're diagnosed with COVID-19, we put a mask on them, uh, send them home, then they can take off the mask at home and, and self-quarantine. Same thing in the hospital, COVID-19 patient in a negative pressure isolation room, uh, we go ahead and put a mask on them when we go down to x-ray and CT and bring them back. And we haven't had major hospital outbreaks as an example. Uh, once nursing homes got under control, there still were nursing home cases, but they used masking in acutely sick nursing home patients. And and probably in the acutely ill individual, an N95 mask, because of droplet control, probably pl does play a role in infection control. And I have no problem with that. Uh, people have asked, Dr. McCullough, do you wear a mask at the hospital? I said, well, of course I do. I'm a cardiologist. If I go into heart catheterization laboratory, I wear a mask. If I went in the operating room, we know surgeons have worn masks uh, for decades now. And, and you know, you can imagine a surgeon who's uh, you know, with an open chest wound and, and, uh, and then there's an uncontrollable sneeze. And let's just say that surgeon uh, had staphylococcus in the nasopharynx, which is common, by the way, in healthcare personnel, by at least a quarter or more have endogenous staph colonization of the nose. Uh, and a big sneeze just launches, uh, you know, particles of staphylococcus into the chest wound and causes a chest infection. We would never allow that. So, of course, surgeons wear masks. And they don't take them off in the middle of the case. They wear them. So, so do scrub nurses, so do dentists, dental hygienists. Anybody who's in close range working with patients wear masks. Now, what does that mean for the airlines? How did we know that the masks represented this false narrative? Well, we knew from the very beginning that people were not wearing masks uh, as they drove up to the airport, for instance. 
they would enter the airport concourse and then they would start wearing masks and that the workers would wear masks. Uh, and then we would go to a uh, restaurant in the airport because our flight was delayed. And then we would take off our masks to eat there in the concourse. But yet other people were wearing masks. Then we put the mask back on. Then we would get on the plane. And we'd sit on the plane side by side. Probably the closest, by the way, the closest contact you'd have with people you don't know is going to be on an airplane, large numbers of them. And then when the drinks came, we all happily took off our masks and, and you know, had our drinks. So you can tell that the masking couldn't have been serious because people took off their masks and the vast majority took off their masks during the flight. So of course masking could not have been a serious attempt at contagion control. It could not have been. Uh, and I can tell you that when you see masks under people's chins or underneath their noses uh, or on their arm, that masks cannot be a serious type of activity. Now, when a surgeon wears a mask in an operating room doing a cardiothoracic surgery, that is a serious use of a mask. When we have an acutely sick COVID patient who we're taking down to CT because they're decompensating from a pulmonary perspective and they have an N95 mask on, that's a serious use of a mask. When we go into a room with an acutely sick COVID patient and we have a susceptible worker that worker's going to wear a mask, and that's a serious use of the mask. So I think so much of what America wants to see is seriousness. Let's be serious about the things that we do and the things that are absurd, the activities that are ridiculous, the policies that are nonsensical. Let's get rid of them, and that's exactly what this Florida judge did. Now, I've had a personal communication with Leslie Manukian, who's a attorney for the Health Defense Fund, and I can tell you uh, she has told me that she does not think the federal government or the Biden administration is going to be able to turn this around. And, you know, one of the difficult, way, uh, you know, facts is, is that so many people so quickly have jettisoned the masks and they are gone. There were celebrations in mid-flight when this was announced. Uh, there were celebrations by uh, airline personnel, passengers. Immediately, Uber and Lyft, which are not the air transportation industry, they uh, lifted their mask mandates. It goes to show you how these industries have almost no courage for independent policy making. And they are caught up in groupthink. And they're going to wait for somebody else. Obviously, Uber and Lyft were going to wait for somebody else to get rid of the masks. And American and United... In Frontier, they were all going to wait for somebody else to get rid of the masks or be told by someone else to get rid of the masks. Uh, now we see variations in how the concourses are run. So I just flew. I flew on Southwest and I was in Love Field. Love Field concourse, no masks. Uh, Love Field had just purchased a seven-foot robot that was going to be uh, whirling around Love Field Concourse, identifying unmasked passengers. And I tell you, that big boob wouldn't have had any trouble identifying my wife, who's a natural rebel, uh, with her mask down below her chin or hanging off of one ear. And I told her, I said, next time we go to Love Field, you're going to get nailed by the seven-foot Love Field robot. What are they going to do with that big waste of money now that the mask mandate is gone and people quickly took off the masks. But I paid attention on the trip here to Kansas City and what I saw was the following. 
I think 15% of people were wearing masks, about 15% of people. And I think that's fine. The final serious use of the mask, I think, is in people who feel vulnerable. There are people with steroid-dependent asthma, uh, emphysema, with congenital heart and lung disease, heart failure, those with immunodeficiencies. There are people with Cartagener syndromes and IgA and IgG deficiencies. There are patients with mycobacterium avium intracellulari complex, those who've had chest surgeries, patients with lung cancer. Uh, you know, I can keep going on and on. These people are vulnerable, meaning if they got COVID-19, it could be serious, and it could be serious from a pulmonary perspective. And so on their own personal choice, if they decided, listen, I'm going to wear a mask to try to protect against droplet sp spread, and that could protect against not only a big sneeze with COVID-19, but also influenza, uh, mycoplasma, uh, chlamydia, uh, pneumonia, other atypical organisms, pneumococcus, haemophilus, uh, boraxella. Uh, it could protect against uh, fungal spores. For instance, people who are steroid dependent would be at risk for inhaling fungal spores. Why wouldn't somebody with severe lung disease potentially want to protect themselves by wearing a mask? I have absolutely no problem with that, and I think it's appropriate. So 15% wearing masks makes sense. If any one of you have traveled to Asia before in the last, I'd say, two decades, I've been to China five times, I can tell you, you will see Asians wearing masks. Some who are sick, probably some who think they could get sick or are concerned, and it's appropriate. Now, is every Asian person wearing a mask? No. I have been asked innumerable times on national TV about masks. And I have said a variety of things. I usually uh, do not do an in-depth analysis as I'm doing for this monologue, mainly because I believe masks represent a distraction. They represent uh, fear. They represent the false narrative. They represent an, a massive amount of effort by our federal government, which was misplaced. I think if we would have taken all the efforts and the emails and the enforcement and remessaging and court cases on masks, and if we would have placed all that effort on devising, developing, and implementing early treatment protocols with monthly updates and improving in-hospital treatment with monthly updates, so many more Americans and people worldwide would have been spared hospitalization and death with COVID-19 than ever spending on masks. I think masks in the end will represent a giant distraction for America and for the world. And it cost lives because it took efforts away, public health and medical efforts away from early treatment. Now, having said that, there's discussion today is going to be about vaccines. And I asked my group uh, coming here today, what do the people in the university environment want to hear about? Do they want to hear about early treatment or do they want to hear about vaccines? There was no hesitation. We want to hear about vaccines. And my emails are blowing up and my texts are blowing up with more and more remorseful people who are reporting that They've taken a vaccine against their will, against their better judgment, 
and they've suffered a vaccine injury or, heaven forbid, uh, a loved one has died shortly after the vaccine. And my natural reaction, of course, is to be sympathetic, to be compassionate, to try to offer help as any doctor or reasonable healthcare worker or caregiver would do. However, there's a part of me that also says, what was the rationale for taking a vaccine against one's better judgment? For the first time, these individuals have taken a pill, taken a needle, done something else against your medical judgment. Can you imagine having a surgery against your medical judgment? Say, well, I had a surgery even though I didn't want it, I had it anyway because I had to keep my job. Or I knew this pill was toxic and I was gonna get sick from it, but I took it anyway because I had to. Someone told me I had to do it. And usually the lead in to these emails and these messages is, Dr. McCullough, I'm 31 years old in this long email, multiple paragraphs, and everybody depends on me. My parents depend on me. My kids depend on me. And I have a good job. I have a real good job. And I was going to lose my good job if I didn't take the vaccine. But I didn't want to take a vaccine, but I was going to lose my job. And so I waited to the very end, and then I took a vaccine, and then something happened. And so part of me wants to say, listen, how good is your job? How good is your employer if your employer is mandating a vaccine where you could lose your life and where thousands of people have lost their lives? How good is your job and how good is your employer if you can receive a serious injury like myocarditis or like a blood clot or heaven forbid become permanently disabled like a blood clot in the arm or a radial neuropathy or a transverse myelitis or Guillain-Barre syndrome or Bell's palsy or heart failure. How good is that employer? Is that an employer you want to work for? And in the most labor-constrained markets that we have in modern history, how many good jobs are out there? And how much could movement of valued workers, like many of you listening to this, your movement from employer to employer could probably change policy. If it became clear that people are going to leave their jobs for a different job that didn't mandate the vaccine, wow, wouldn't that change policy quicker than anything? People can't get quality employees and employers found a competitive advantage to basically drop their vaccine mandate and get all the good employees that they wanted, like Starbucks or FedEx or General Electric or United Airlines, or now Southwest Airlines. So the next person who emails me with a vaccine injury, or heaven forbid a death, one of the th questions I am gonna ask is, where's the outrage? Where is the outrage? Where is the remorse? And where is the outrage? Because we have a situation where large numbers of people are being injured and dying after taking a vaccine now. That's largely against one's will. And I am not seeing the type of remorse and outrage that I would expect if it was some other circumstance, if people were buying automobiles and they were blowing up as they left the parking lot and families were burning up alive in these automobiles, I think there would be outrage 
I think there would be absolute outrage. People would be on TV saying, listen, we've got to stop these cars from going off the lot. What I sense from people is that there's not only guilt, there's remorse, but there's also a sense of shame that they have a sense that they should have been taking the vaccine, that the vaccine is for the greater good and they've suffered harm in trying to serve the greater good. And while they feel burned, while they feel injured, or heaven forbid, they've lost a loved one, they don't have the courage to basically step up and say, something is very, very wrong. We need to stop this monster and we need to stop it now. So right on cue, let's hear from Captain Bob Snow, who's just suffered a cardiac arrest after landing a plane at DFW Airport. My name is Bob Snow. I'm a captain, been a captain for a number of years. My total service with the company is over 31 years. On November 7th, I was mandated to receive a vaccine. Quite literally, I was told if I did not receive the vaccination, I would be fired. This was from our director of flight. So, under duress, I received the vaccine. Uh, now, just a few days ago, after landing in Dallas, six minutes after we landed, I passed out. Uh, I coded. I required three shocks. I needed to be intubated. I'm now in the ICU in Dallas. This is what the vaccine has done for me. I will probably never fly again, uh, based upon the criteria that the FAA establishes for pilots. I was hoping to teach my daughter to fly. She wants to be a pilot. That will probably never happen. All courtesy of the vaccine. This is unacceptable, and I am one of the victims. You can see that this is the actual result of the vaccine for some of us. Mandatory, no questions asked, get the shot or you're fired. This is not the American way. So that was Captain Robert Bob Snow, and uh, I've been in communication with uh, physician military expert Pete Chambers and attorney Todd Callender, who are very close to the Snow affair. He is uh, working very hard to uh, have the right tests, including a cardiac MRI, to either confirm or uh, rule out vaccine-induced myocarditis as a cause of his cardiac arrest. Now, I can tell you he's older. Uh, he's uh, slightly obese. Could he just have garden-variety coronary heart disease? And I've suffered a myocardial infarction and a particular fibrillation arrest. It's certainly possible. I don't know the details. But it is true that he suffered a cardiac arrest with almost no premonitory symptoms. He's now ambulatory in a Dallas ICU. It doesn't look like a patient who's about ready to have bypass surgery and angioplasty. He's going to need a defibrillator for secondary prevention. But he should have an MRI, and he should have careful consideration on whether or not the vaccine could have caused myocarditis, or could the vaccine have set him up for an atherosclerotic cardiovascular event, an ischemic event, that led to a ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation event, and then resuscitation. He, he is owed that investigation by the doctors who I'm told were reluctant 
to actually go through an evaluation to see if the vaccine caused his cardiac problems. So he's pushing, he's getting a lot of help, help and let's say, uh, let's hope he gets it. He is right. He's going to get a defibrillator, and by the rules, he almost certainly uh, will never fly again. In his mind, until the right diagnostic evaluation is done, uh, in his mind, you can tell he thinks this could be due to the vaccine. So what would I do? I can tell you as a cardiologist, we do history, physical, EKG, echocardiography to look for left ventricular and right ventricular dysfunction, chamber enlargement, valvular disease, myocarditis, it would be left and right ventricular involvement. Uh, we get a test, a high sensitivity troponin, which indicates cardiac damage, but also blood BNP, uh, SD2 and galactin-3, which indicate heart failure and abnormal myocardial fibrosis. But very importantly, we get cardiac MRI for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the patterns look like they're almost diagnostic now for vaccine-induced myocarditis. Two papers by Jennifer Schauer and colleagues and younger people have shown that the, the late gadolinium enhancement in the myocarditis uh, due to the vaccine is extensive. Uh, and it is persistent. That is, it doesn't go away or completely go away, at least uh, by more than four months with the second MRI. Now, her work has been groundbreaking, and I hope to have her on the McCullough Report. Just to give you an idea, we can calculate percent myocardial scar by late gadolinium enhancement. Gadolinium is the uh, contrast agent we use in MRI or gadadiamide. And as a general rule, 15% of the left ventricular muscle is a big enough fraction to actually cause a cardiac arrest. In some conditions, when we see that, let's say in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or Fabry's disease, we say, listen, the, the risk is too high. It's, it's a big scar. There can be a reentrant arrhythmia event around it. Uh, there's enough data there to say, listen, we should put in an ICD before the cardiac arrest happens. Well, in the case of Bob Snow, the cardiac arrest has already happened. Uh, so once that's, that's the case, we know that a second cardiac arrest could happen, no matter what the cause, whether that be non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, coronary heart disease, or even vaccine-induced myocarditis. The chances, once somebody has a cardiac arrest and survives like him, no matter what we do, the chances of a second cardiac arrest, particularly when the left ventricular ejection fraction is less than 35%, a normal pumping fraction of the heart is 55 to 75%, the chances of a second cardiac arrest or the need for the defibrillator to come into play are between 50 and 75% in that circumstance. When the defibrillator is put in uh, prophylactically and someone's never had a cardiac arrest in the past and it's done, let's say, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or even for vaccine-induced myocarditis and left ventricular dysfunction, uh, the chances that the defibrillator would be used over the next four years are roughly 25% or so. So the prophylactic use of an ICD uh, doesn't have the same yield as what's called a secondary prevention use of an ICD. So that's the points there. Uh, myocarditis is serious. There's going to be more and more people in each and every case now we are asking the question, did they take a vaccine? And what was the temporal relationship between the vaccine and the cardiac arrest? There are hundreds and hundreds of athletes that have died on the field. Uh, we heard about European athletes, and now we're starting to hear more and more about American athletes. Any one of you want to go to my Twitter feed, I usually feature some of these on my Twitter feed, so you can take a look at this uh, P underscore uh, McCullough MD. And uh, one of the ones I just put up here was um, a uh, 
19-year-old Arizona State student dies after being found unresponsive in the Sun Devil Fitness Center. Um, Adam Wolf, a spokesperson for the ASU Police Department, said around 7.20 at night, officers responded to a report of an injured person in the fitness center and found young Andrew Bryan, 19 years old, unresponsive in the pool area. The police took over CPR, but he was declared dead. And, you know, I just checked. Uh, Arizona State University had a vaccine mandate. It included employees, students, and workers, and that was uh, announced back on October 15th, 2021. So the questions are, in each and every one of these press stories about these young individuals dying is, did they take a COVID-19 vaccine and when? And with the myocarditis and the cardiac death, the peak incidence uh, time period is typically within uh, 30 days of the second shot. Now, it's very possible that myocarditis could set in and there can be a deep myocardial scar and some degree of left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure. And then, you know, five months later, have a heart failure event, a cardiac event like pilot uh, Robert Snow. Uh, but that's different. That's not myocarditis triggered by catecholamines, uh, like potentially in the case of the AU student. That's really just the stochastic risk of a cardiac arrest that's related to a myocardial scar. So uh, we will find out. And with really good work by uh, advocates, physician advocate Pete Chambers, and with uh, attorney Todd Callender, uh, who's working very closely now with the Truth for Health Foundation, we should get the news. We should get the word, does this pilot have a vaccine-induced myocarditis or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease event that's uh, reasonably associated with the vaccine, or is this something completely different? And we'll be able to find that out. What should the parents of the ASU student do? I think they should get an autopsy. I think autopsies should be done in each and every case until we can better ascertain what in the world is happening with so many young people dying? Final word on deaths on my Twitter feed. Uh, uh, Epic TV is going to feature Dr. Richard Urso, who's a molecular uh, scientist as well as a uh, medical specialist in Houston, Texas. And uh, the title of his program is a uh, 40% rise in deaths. This is all-cause mortality. The RNA uh, messenger RNA vaccines lead to spike protein entering the nucleus, rise in vascular events, 40% increase in all-cause death. And sure enough, I juxtapose mortality from the CDC Wonder system. Uh, mortality, all-cause mortality, ages 15 to 44 from years 2015 to 2021. And I can tell you in that age group per year, 2015 to 2019, we have basically about 169,000 people that age die in the United States per year. In 2020, with COVID-19, with COVID-19, that number went from 168,000 individuals to 204,959 individuals, and of those, 8,833 uh, uh, on top of that were thought to be due to COVID. So the total number for 2020 was 2,113,792 deaths. That's a big jump up from once 168,000. Now in 2021, now that total number is up to 244,646, 23,377 thought to be due to COVID-19, the respiratory illness. 
So the question is, that giant jump of basically 84,000 deaths, ages 15 to 44, of which we could explain away 23,000 on COVID-19 respiratory illness, where is the other 60,000 deaths coming from? Could it be the vaccines? And until we get more good epidemiologic work, good casework, all hands are are on deck now uh, to figure this out. Okay, we have a terrific show for you. Uh, We do have uh, a wonderful guest. He's one of the first repeat guests to the um, McCullough Report, and that's Dr. George Fareed. And um, he's from South South, uh, um, Central uh, uh, California, and uh, does have a they do have a wonderful book together. And I wanted to give Dr. Fareed uh, an opportunity to uh, uh, present their book. And the title of the book is "Overcoming the COVID-19 Darkness: How Two Doctors Successfully Treated 7,000 Patients." It's in paperback. It is available at uh, all the major books uh, stores. And you know they wrote it themselves. I give them great credit. One of the nice things about this book is they talk about how they developed an outpatient treatment center, how they came up with the various treatment protocols, uh, how it was so evidence-based and clinically based. Uh, Brian Tyson's a young, kind of spunky, uh, full of energy uh, a physician, and George Freed is very senior, trained at Harvard, the National Institutes of Health, uh, and he's in the twilight of his career. You couldn't find a better one-two punch on this. Dr. Freed also took care of patients in the nursing home. Uh, so their book is full of a lot of pearls and treatment protocols, but interesting, it's also a monograph, meaning that I believe it's chapter eight, where they actually give all the data from their clinic. And this is a wonderful way to publish an experience, particularly now where the peer-reviewed literature is incredibly biased towards vaccination and against early treatment. This is an independent way of publishing the data. They worked with uh, a, a brilliant statistician, Matthew Crawford. Uh, it's very sound, and I'd encourage everybody to take a look at this book again by Fareed and Tyson, Overcoming the COVID Darkness, How Two Doctors Successfully Treated 7,000 Patients. Now, really quickly, uh, we have a wonderful music trailer, and it's from uh, Tanya DeYoung from Australia. She's in our circle. She's a personal friend. Uh, she is a wonderful artist. If you ever have a chance to see her and her family members uh, and ever get down to Melbourne uh, and uh, Sydney, the major cities there, uh, the various shows, the musicals, uh, uh, Young family is incredibly well known. Let's have a listen. And this is the trailer for Driftwood the Musical. Next time I get to Australia, for sure, I'm going to want to see it. But let's have a listen. tells the amazing story of my mother, Slava Horowitz, who invented the foldable umbrella in Vienna in 1929. She fell in love and married the acclaimed sculptor Karl Dulding. Their apartment in Vienna was full of their beautiful art and their customized furniture. My name is Eva de Jong-Dolding. 
I was born in 1938. One month after I was born, Hitler marched into Vienna and we were forced to flee for our lives. I'm sitting here in one of the armchairs from the Viennese apartment. How did it and everything else get here? This is a photo of my mother with her beloved sister Rella. It was taken in Vienna in 1938, just before they were separated by the Second World War. How did we survive against all odds? To find out what happens, you must see this captivating show, written by Jane Bodie, with music by Anthony Barnhill, and directed by Wesley Enoch, and with an outstanding cast, as well as a highly talented creative team. Well, it looks terrific. I'll, I'll show the clip in the notes of the show. Uh, Tanya DeYoung is incredible. She obviously is in the is in the descendant line from the heroine in the story, uh, the wonderful lady who was able to escape Vienna, Austria, uh, during uh, the reign of Hitler and survive to tell the story. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's healthy cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use healthy cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The immune super boost, focus and memory, and the REM sleep supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to healthycell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients, like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. It tastes great, comes in a convenient squeeze gel pack, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. 
If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both in the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to welcome back to the microphone Dr. George Farid. Dr. Farid has been introduced to the McCullough Report audience back in September of 2021. He's one of the early treatment doctors. He's trained at Harvard. He's had experience at the National Institutes of Health and was one of the very first innovators with early ambulatory treatment of COVID-19. And now he has a new book out, and I wanted him to tell the audience about the book and you know give us the cliff notes uh, in a teaser for, uh, for what we can expect to, to see in your book. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's a tr- uh, privilege to be on your show. Uh, and I really, uh, you are a le- our leader in the United States. So anytime I get a call from you to do anything, you can count on me. But regardless, in this, in the pandemic, uh, we uh, started early treatment, uh, Dr. Brian Tyson and I, in March 2020, when COVID hit in Southern California. And we used hydroxychloroquine, which a lot of evidence suggested was an excellent antiviral for coronaviruses. And it proved to be so very effective in the dosing that we used. We followed work from Vladimir Zelenko and from uh, uh, DDA Raoult in France, and, and then some basic studies that showed antiviral in vitro action against coronaviruses. And it proved to be so safe and effective that we were just uh, so pleased with the results. And our book is our sojourn with this and with improving the protocol as time went by based upon the multifaceted sequence therapy regimen or algorithm that you presented so effectively and continue to uh, update and uh, guide uh, doctors around the world in, in effective early treatment. We, we were, uh, so uh, uh, sad and by the suppression of early treatment and particularly HCQ hydroxychloroquine. And it was uh, done based upon conflicts of interest and ulterior motives and a commitment to this max vaccina- vaccination approach that has failed basically. And we, uh, we were just uh, aghast at that. And so our book is a first person accounting of uh, the whole pandemic from the perspective of doctors in the, on the front line, Dr. P- uh, Brian Tyson, who my colleague uh, who uh, set up a urgent care clinic, uh, had one operating and made it operate as a fever clinic that uh, should have guided the whole world on how to deal with uh, or, uh, with COVID-19 and, and pandemic in general. 
but in any case, we, we've amassed now well over 10,000 patients who are have fully recovered in many high-risk patients when treated within the first three to five days as, as you've uh, uh, espoused and um, others have also, that that's when it can be treated and all the complications and, uh, and sad aspects of COVID-19 can be prevented. And that's, that was our goal. I was treating in the hospital also throughout the pandemic on, on periods of time, uh, generally weekly or every few weeks. And I dealt with the patients on ventilators and, and there's their struggles and, and deterioration that took place, which all should have been prevented. So our, our book uh, presents that in a very honest way. And it, it has, it's well uh, referenced. It has, in addition, uh, uh, Matthew Crawford, an a, a absolutely brilliant independent statistician, took all of our results from the urgent care, not uh, that for the first year of 4,300, 4, 4,400 patients, and did a very ex excellent statistical analysis uh, showing the marked efficacy with um, basically 100% recovery in the patients treated early and 99.97% reduction in hospitalization for those treated early. Uh, and we, we tried to get it published. You were helping us with that on the paper. And there would uh, always be censorship issues, I gather, or I'm not sure what. But uh, we have in our book, uh, chapter eight is the full uh, publication of that work with a, an extensive uh, d uh, analysis by uh, Matthew Crawford that's very worthwhile and very important. That may be the most important aspect of our book. But we're, we're now uh, still just pushing early treatment. We still use our protocol, even though other agents have become available. We make use of monoclonal antibodies when they're uh, available and appropriate. Uh, we will use if lambda interferon comes available and looks very important for helping as a additional agent to the oral agents that would be employed or the new agents that are in EUAs like Paxlovid or Monolinupririvir, particularly Paxlovid might be a, a worth is a worthwhile agent as a proteus inhibitor of COVID-19. But uh, they, they aren't necessarily any better. And I don't think they will be from the standpoint of helping patients overcome the, um, uh, the illness and recover very promptly without uh, deterioration. And that that's basically uh, our goal uh, from the book. It was written to educate people from the standpoint of the frontline doctors, uh, the two of us, and echoing greatly what you have espoused and what many other great doctors have done around the world, like Didier Rao and Vladimir Zelenko and um, uh, the um, the others that you, you've co-authored with, Peter. You know, what's the title of the book, George? It's uh, titled Overcoming the COVID Darkness, How Two Doctors Successfully Treated 7,000 Patients. And, and the basic motto is that no one has to die due to COVID. Uh, but that's the title. It's, um, it's on Amazon. It's available Audible, Kindle, uh, by uh, paperback or hardback. And then, and then we have a, uh, just launched a website that actually gives a lot of information in addition, updating and some uh, it's called Overcoming COVID Darkness, not not the, uh, over, it's OvercomingCOVIDDarkness.com. And, and so that's um, just uh, was launched this week. 
to help with um, updating information uh, related to the book and other other work that's been done, and in, including your work. You know, I think that's a a, a terrific. Uh, overview and um, it's great for the listeners to understand that in a sense that the chapter with Matt Crawford uh, and the analysis of your results in a sense that's like an old-time physician monograph and that um, it was common years ago that doctors would publish their experience in a monograph surgeons used to do this all the time and I'll never forget in cardiology there was a doctor who uh, was met with great skepticism originally. It was Dean Ornish. And Dean published uh, an attempt on trying to treat coronary heart disease with diet and a very low saturated fat. Yes. And you know what he ended up doing? He ended up publishing, in a sense, a monograph. And his book, Dean Ornish's book, became one of the most popular books in all of general health and coronary heart disease years ago. Yeah, yeah I, I recall reading it, studying it. So yeah, that's a, I appreciate that mention, that point. In a sense, that's uh, uh, we, we feel very comfortable and happy that this is a major part of the book. Uh, the other thing that we've done on our website is we've uh, gotten approval from Ben Marble to have the Tyson Fareed protocol provided if patients ask for it through uh, myfreedoctor.com under telemedicine. So uh, that's uh, th- that's mentioned uh, indicated directly on the homepage that if patients are in need of treatment from using a tried and true p- protocol uh, th- that we call the Tyson Fareed protocol, it's not necessarily too much different from the McCullough protocol or the um, Vladimir Zelenko or DDRL protocol. But in any case, uh, it, it uh, they can ask directly for it and don't have to um, necessarily call me or call Brian Tyson or come into the clinics that we have here in Uh, California. Yeah, I think that's terrific. And I want the listeners to know that, um, you you know, putting a name on a protocol or an 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 eponym or an acronym uh, is just a way of just trying to make it more handy to find. So uh, for the McCullough Protocol, Ben Marble is the one who applied for the copyright for it. Because uh, he said people are, you know, it's, it's all over and it became known and I, you know, begrudgingly accepted it. It was very nice. It was, you know, I was honored that he did it. But um, if there was another way to do it, how the Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick did it is they called it iMath and Math Plus. And what everybody should understand, George, is they should be reassured that people working in different areas of the world, not communicating with one another, came up with the same principles of treatment. And it's been proven time and time again in different regions. In a sense, it's been internally and externally validated. And your work, the nice thing about what you did is you did the hard part of getting it all in a book and getting the analysis in a sense of built-in monograph in there. Um, One of the questions I wanted to ask you is there's a lot of famous videos of you and Brian Tyson out there. And the ones that are in my mind show like an outdoor tent and people are coming in. It's a lot of Hispanics and, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, your clientele wasn't uh, people from the wealthy suburbs. It looked like people from all walks of life and they'd come to an outdoor tent. Did, did, did you ever have any spread for people coming in? For- I, I'm sorry. Did you ever have oh. any spread? Did you ever have an outbreak because you, you, in a sense, face the virus one-on-one. 
Well, I, I, we really were able to keep it um, in check in, in, in terms of the population coming in for screening and for treatment. And we didn't see any, any uh, outbreaks uh, because of the way the tents were set up. And, and for the most part, they allowed spacing for individuals with good airflow and, and then the uh, best that one could do with PPE. Uh, many of the of the staff became contracted COVID-19 at different times, and and they all did very well with our treatment. And uh, of course, I caught it finally at the very end with Omicron, but um, I, my our treatment worked very well for me. Um, I I, uh, I think it's it it, it we're dealing with uh, these infectious variants that are unpredictable. And now they weren't uh, as quite as infectious uh, during the early part of the pandemic, but they were they they, they still were being transmitted and in conditions when they uh, people were close together, and that that was a sad thing that the the Fauci NIH FDA guideline or CDC to go home and fight it off uh, just allowed for it to spread in the households, and um, as a consequence, it it became a explosion uh, at different times in the last two years. But uh, by treating early, as you've pointed out so often, it, you, you minimize that uh, very greatly and you allow for individuals to get back to a viral free, uh, non-shedding state. Uh, and, and then it, very good points that you brought out of using decontamination uh, uh, treatments for the, uh, with the providine, dilute providine iodine and, uh, or uh, hydrogen peroxide solutions for the nasal passages in the throat uh, as another way of minimizing uh, the ability, to, the likelihood of spread through uh, uh, breathing, for instance. You know, that's a great point, George. The, the um, randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues it dropped the contagiousness by about 80% in a couple of days because the, literally the virus is knocked down in the nasal passages where people aren't coughing it out and breathing it out on others. Um, I know I had COVID-19 early. I had the Omicron about the same time you did. And in the meantime, I've had two common colds. I'm finishing up my second common cold right now. And I'm using the dilute povidone iodine nasal washes as my primary treatment. Now, normally for me, a common cold would be two weeks of congestion and coughing and what have you. George, it's down to about three days. It's about that, days. That's extraordinary. Yeah, the, the, the nasal, virucidal nasal washes. When I talked to uh, ear, nose, and throat doctors and dentists and others, they said, yeah, they said, we've been doing this our entire career. I said, how come I didn't know about this? I'm so frustrated. So you do the nasal washes, but also the gargles. Now, gargles can be more diverse. You could end up using Scope or Listerine. That will use fine. I've got a bottle of povidone iodine, so I just put a couple drops in a glass and then I gargle with it. What I've learned is that you have to do about 30 seconds of the gargle. It's a long gargle. And on the nasal washes, you've got to really squirt a lot up in the nose over the sink, sniff it all the way back, and then spit it out your mouth. It's got to go all the way around. And uh, we mentioned povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide. There's other products, colloidal silver, Xlear. Uh, there's even um, a commercial product now of povidone iodine called Cofix RX, which is easy to buy. And uh, I had some of those in the house because other people got sick. It was just easier for me just to hand them Cofix RX and tell them to do it. Uh, but we have now, I think, you know, one of the benefits of COVID-19 
the respiratory illness is we've learned so much. I wanted to ask you your opinion, George, about spread because you have, you know, you and Dr. Tyson probably have some of the most, most experience of, of anybody in the whole world in treating COVID-19. What's your view of what's going on in China right now, where they're locking down people in Shanghai, they're wearing hazmat suits and tackling each other and trying to shove uh, you know, swabs up their nose. I, I mean, just what's your gut reaction to that? Oh, it's very negative, my gut reaction, and that uh, they're, they're leading to a, uh, a catastrophe or making things worse, basically, by that. And I, I, I really wonder if they aren't paying, uh, giving he good heed to all that we've learned about early treatment and uh, in instituting the, these um, treatments that now are well-publicized there. Uh, it sounds like they aren't. To me, and I think that it's absolutely a, a, a terrible mistake to do what they're doing. Uh, it, it seems rather uh, terribly sad for the populations that are affected. And, and, and what about wearing hazmat suits? I can tell you personally, I did most of my care by telemedicine. I followed people up in the office. And then a few times during the Delta outbreak, I got so busy, I just went to people's houses. And, you know, I never wore a hazmat suit. Um, you, you know, I, to my knowledge, it, it's not spread. It's not a contact spread. It's not like Ebola or Clostridium difficile. It's simply uh, an airborne illness. Have you ever worn no. a hazmat suit, for instance? No, 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 no. The closest I came with would be the PAPRs or the... Um, uh, PPE that we'd wear in the hospital in the in intensive care unit. Uh, and yet I, I gave up wearing that after, uh, toward the end of, uh, the la of last year, uh, because I felt very comfortable just wearing a N95 mask and having, um, and using good hygiene, basically. George, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been a wonderful interview. I will point the listeners to the website for your new book, uh, the new book about COVID-19, How to Treat It, written by George Fareed and Brian Tyson, two of the brilliant innovators and the most courageous doctors early on in the pandemic, leading America forward with early treatment, South Central California, very important monograph in it that discloses all their data, which is the best way to actually show that something works is to publish the information. It's going to be in this important book. Uh, because it's so practical and so data-driven, I think every household is going to want to have this, not only for uh, the next few months or next few years, but also for historical reasons. And I give great credit to Dr. George Freed and Brian Tyson. George, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.